Welcome to the Advanced Lacrosse Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Rotelli, founder and CEO of Advanced Lacrosse. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we're excited to be joined by a man most of you are familiar with, Paul Carcaterra. Paul has been one of the lead voices for college lacrosse as an ESPN sideline reporter and game analyst since 2010. He's also a sideline reporter for ESPN's college football coverage. Back on the lacrosse side, Paul's the founder of Maverick Showtime, one of the top college recruiting showcases in America. Paul played lacrosse at Syracuse, helping the Orange win a national title in 1995. Cart, thanks for coming on your show. How are you Thank doing? Thank you. I'm doing great, man. I'll tell you what, though. I like, I like your bio better. You're a CEO. <laughs> Still trying to figure out what that means. <laughs> Uh, it's awesome to talk to you. You are involved in lacrosse in so many different ways um, as a player, as a father, as an analyst, a reporter. Um, so excited to, to talk to you. I want to start at the beginning. You know, how did you get involved in lacrosse in the first place? You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Yorktown, New York, which is in Westchester County. And it's about 35, 40 miles north of New York City. And my parents grew up in the city. They had no clue uh, what the sport of lacrosse was. I mean, my dad played pickup hoops um, on the streets of New York City. He played rugby in college. He wasn't a, a, a total athlete by any stretch either. He's more of a bookworm. Yeah. Um, and my mom wasn't athletic at all. But they decided to, to move the family when I was two years old up from New York City uh, to what they called uh, the country back then in Yorktown. And little did they know, they were moving to a place that had incredible culture and history in regards to the sport of lacrosse. And I say that because Yorktown and lacrosse, it's like, has this Indiana (laughs) basketball feel to it. I mean, everything is lacrosse in the town. And when I was growing up, um, I was really into athletics. I started playing baseball when I was in like kindergarten and played soccer and played little league football. And then when I got to about third, fourth grade, all my buddies who had older um, siblings were playing lacrosse. So that's what I wanted to do. So I asked for a lacrosse stick and, you know, the the rest is history. And the cool thing about Yorktown is a lot of kids, you know, growing up, you know, they might idolize Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or um, Joe Montana. My idols actually were in the town I grew up in and they were guys that were incredible high school lacrosse players that maybe I was the ball boy um, during their high school games. And I followed them in college. And those are the guys I wanted to emulate. Those are the guys I wanted to be. Um, whether it was like the Nelson brothers who played at, oh, at yeah. Syracuse or, or guys like Scott Marr, who was at Johns Hopkins um, and now the coach of Albany, he's from my hometown. So like, those are the guys that I looked up to. Those are the guys that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a professional football player. I didn't want to be a professional baseball or basketball player. I wanted to be a college lacrosse player and and living in that town gave me every opportunity because I was around my heroes and my stars. And it was, it was one of those places where you just wanted to be impactful and part of the winning tradition. So very, very fortunate because outside of the game and everything that we did on the field, when I say the culture of the sport, you know that better than anyone. It's, it's, it's amazing the fraternity that uh, was established in Yorktown. To this day, it's it's near and dear to my heart. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, so Tim Nelson went to Cuse. Scott Marr yep. went to Hopkins. Is that sort of how you started thinking about where you wanted to go to college? How'd you end up at Syracuse? Well, there was a great pipeline uh, from Yorktown to Syracuse. You know, Tim Nelson. Yeah. who at the time was, you know, a three-time Turnbull Award winner for the National Attackman of the Year, and he broke every NCAA assist record uh, in the early 80s. He was part of that 83 National Championship, which was Syracuse's first. Uh, his brother Tom followed him, graduated in 87. Then we had a really nice pipeline um, from Yorktown. Guys a few years older than me, like Dom Finn, who was in the National oh, Lacrosse yeah. Hall, Hall of Fame. Roy Colsey, National Lacrosse Hall of Fame. They were all before me. Um, at Yorktown and went to Syracuse. So uh, my best friend, my childhood best friend, who we played all our little league games with, uh, all our high school games with, his name was Rob Cavavit. Um, he went to Syracuse the same year as I did. Um, we didn't ever plan on being a package deal, but he was my very best friend from 
and being a little little tyke and we were able to win a couple state championships in high school and won a national title together and um it was an amazing journey with rob too so i i was able to enjoy all those experiences uh throughout my lacrosse career with my best friend who was from my hometown um and it was just a it was an amazing kind of way to to, to cap a career that is that is so cool um so you're at Syracuse in the mid nineties. You're sort of right in the middle of that run of 22, I think final four appearances in a row, uh, literally some of the best teams of all time. And the, some of the greatest players of all time are there while you're there. What are some of the memories that stand out, uh, from your days at the Cuse? Roy Simmons, Jr., uh, my coach. I mean, he was, he was an amazing mentor, um, for, for young men who were clueless, who show up at <laughs> campus as, as a freshman. And you, you know, you, you think, you know, it all, you know, nothing, but more importantly, like you don't even have to navigate life. You don't know how to do things on your own. Um, you know, so I'm going from a small town in Yorktown to going up to Syracuse as a freshman, I'm living on my own. I'm living in an apartment with two other lacrosse guys and we're clueless, but the rock up there was, was Roy Simmons Jr. And he was, he was the greatest coach I've ever had in any sport. And he taught me the least of <laughs> any sport I ever played in because he just gave me belief. Wow. And I believed in myself as a person. And I loved the game coming to Syracuse. And if you go to a Division One school, as you know, and, you know, your years at Virginia and, and, and understanding that every single person at Virginia or every single person at Syracuse is there because A, they're super competitive, and B, they love the game. So how can a coach embrace that and make you the best you possibly can? Well, it's to instill values and a level of enjoyment that makes you want to be the best. Like lacrosse practice was never a grind for me. I never, regr- I never like would would go in apprehensive about like, oh, practice, this stinks. Now, were there Saturday mornings where I'd like to sleep in? Of course. But once I got there, I actually had fun. <laughs> so for me, for me um, playing for Roy Simmons, I go to Syracuse. I'm competitive already. I love the game. He kind of just upped the ante on both of those aspects even more. So he had 40-something guys on the team that all loved the game, that were competitive, that wanted to be great. So – his belief, whether he knows it or not, was to make this the most enjoyable, fulfilled type of experience that you can have. And that's what it was. I mean, he taught us so many things about life. I mean, when we play away games, we'd stop at like these museums that were like, what is he doing? You know? <laughs> but, like, there, was, there was always a silver lining in everything. I mean, he, he, ex- he, he expanded my horizons in terms of the way I think. And when you go into his office, you didn't talk about the one three two offense that he's trying to, you know, implement and, and, and throw a you know a motion offense against the zone. He he would tell you to read like these weird books or he would he would give you pictures of him and, and stuff that he was doing when he was working for the university as an art professor um, that were part of his experiences. So like you went into his office and you could spend a couple hours and not even really talk about lacrosse. So like he just made the experience so fun. He made it so fun for everyone. And the key thing for all of us, like when May came and it was tournament time, we were never burnt out. Like no <laughs> one wanted the season to end. I mean, we, it was like the only time of the year where it was nice out in Syracuse. So, we, you know, the playoffs <laughs> start in May and we're barbecuing every day. And like it was really a crappy experience when – the end of the season came and we'd have to head home because we were having so much fun and we loved being around each other. And, and that was all semi. Wow. And who wouldn't want to go play for a guy like that? Was were all the players able to have that same relationship? I found the guys that have the most, most success in college are, are able to have a good relationship with the head coach and able to go into the office and talk to him. Do you feel like everybody on the team had that, um, relationship with Simmons or was it just certain guys? I, I would say it was more guys than not. Yeah. And, you know, there were actually a lot of guys who, who didn't get a ton of playing time and weren't like stars on the team that had great relationships with him too. He didn't like single out just the stars and give this kid more, um, you know, preferential treatment than the next dude. 
Um, that's what he was great at. He was great at managing egos. He knew like when to push, when not to. Um, but, but I would say, look, like in anything, there's going to be a certain level of buy-in on a team. If there's 40 guys, not every single guy is going to buy in the same. Not every single guy is going to want to be great. Not every single guy is going to want to have a relationship with a 60-year-old dude and talk <laughs> about talk about weird stuff. But to me, that was like that was really interesting. And, and the way that I grew up and my, my family experience and, and, you know, we were always really open people. And um, my mom and dad never really judged people. Uh, my dad was a school teacher in the South Bronx for 32 years. He taught Latin. I mean, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. He taught one of the worst neighborhoods in, in the Bronx. He was teaching Latin. Wow. Um, he just was a really interesting guy, my dad. I mean, he was just a, a homebody type dude who, who liked the tri-state area, who never really wanted to branch out, was an Italian mama's boy and really bright guy. So I think my dad taught me a lot of that. I mean, my dad was a, was a, was a kid who went to Cardinal Hayes in New York City, which is a a great private Catholic school. There were 600 boys in his school, and he graduated sixth. I mean, he had some academic wow. scholarships to, to a lot of great places, but he wanted to stay home, and he stayed home in Fordham. And he made his life in New York City, and he, he, he made his life with, with underprivileged minority kids in the Bronx. So, like, my dad gave us so many gifts growing up in terms of, like, how to look at things and to, to kind of look at opportunities and the way people think and, and the way that people do things. Uh, with with open arms and so like for for me that was easy to adjust to a guy like Simi yeah maybe not every guy had that kind of background that I had right how about the players who 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 would you say and I know this is going to be a tough question to answer who's the best player you ever played with at Syracuse and then also who is the most interesting character because you had a lot of big personalities on those teams yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll go through players in a, in a, in a couple of levels. I, I would say the best three players that I played with were Roy Colsey, Dom Finn, and Casey Powell. And, and they were very different. Like, Roy was a goal-scoring assassin that physically couldn't be stopped uh, at the midfield. He's a three-time first-team All-American midfielder of the year. A guy a year older that I only played with for one year, Dom Finn, was a three-time All-American midfielder of the year. Uh, so they, they, like, Dom did his three years first time, uh, first team and midi of the year. Roy did his three years first team midi of the year. Those two guys, they were so different, though. Dom was, was like, a, a point guard passing, slashing type, like Allen Iverson with a lacrosse stick. Um, Roy was the brute force guy. The, the blend of both and the best, I would have to say, was, was Casey. Yeah. I mean, Casey was... Casey was was incredible. I mean, when you think about what Casey did in the sport of lacrosse, it's unprecedented. This kid was a second team All-American as a freshman. Okay, played attack his entire life. His sophomore year, our starting six, I was a junior that year, were all former high school attackmen. He was so he was so athletic that they put him at midfield for one year. And he was a first-team All-American in National Midi of the Year. I mean, think about that for a second, <laughs> that right? That's crazy. And, and then the next two years, he's the National Attackman of the Year. So he was a blend of both of them. Like, Casey was physical when he needed to get physical. He was finesse when he needed to get finesse. He was a passer when he needed to pass. He was a scorer when he needed to score. He was so talented. And the greatest thing about Casey, which I try to tell kids now his greatest gift was coming from a program that was underdeveloped. And, and I say that because he had to play every role on the field in high school. So he was like a chameleon. So when, when we asked him to, to play a wing uh, on, on a face-off, he, he knew how to do it. When, yeah. when we asked him to clear the ball, he knew how to clear the ball because he was actually the first Division One kid ever from Carthage High School in northern New York to, to play D1. So like for him, he was their first star. He so was? He was I, I didn't yeah. know that. Huh. No, I mean, uh, Jason Kaufman at Salisbury was, was obviously an amazing player a couple years older than him, but you know, Salisbury at the time, it still is D3. And then after it was a pipeline. So Casey was the first division one recruit out of Carthage. He goes to Syracuse. He could do everything like day one. He shows up at practice and we're like, okay, the guys that we all thought were starting, one of them's not now. Like it's, 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 it's that simple. So he had the blend of everything. And then the most underrated player, and I'm not just saying this because I'm biased, but it was my best friend um, growing up 
was Rob Cavett. He was the same class of mine. I remember um, the, watching Cavett. Yeah. I loved watching him play. He was so good. He, here's all you need to know about Rob Cavett. There's only four players in Syracuse history with 125 goals and 120 assists. It's the three Powells in Rob Cavett. <laughs> so, I mean, he was amazing. The problem with Rob is he played in the same era as Casey. So he was overshadowed because he wasn't as – as dynamic of an athlete as Casey. He didn't pop off the page, but his production was insane. Our sophomore year, we won the national title. Um, in the semifinals and finals combined, he had 15 points. I mean, he was amazing. Wow. God, that's incredible. All right, how about most interesting character? Wow, there's a list of them, man. Like, <laughs> that's why I'm I, asking. There's some guys that I, I left hoping I would never see again. Uh, <laughs> who who, who would, who, because back then, man, we didn't have like ATM cards. Um, so I'm going to be honest with you, man. There was a couple dudes on our team that would like steal money from a couple kids on the team. Like, cause back then, like your mom or dad would send you pizza money in an envelope. You know, it'd be like a little <laughs> yellow memo sheet saying, enjoy pizza on Friday night, Paul, with a 20 in it. And there was a guy or two, and I'm not going to say who it was that were just like, beyond pathetic that would would steal and look at you in the face and say no that's not i didn't do that you're crazy and then go underneath his bed and you see the crumbled up envelope <laughs> that, the same guy would like be out at the bar with like your brand new sweater that you just got at christmas and it's january and you're like dude that's my sweater no it's not so we had a few of those guys and th- 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 then we had just like the, the overall characters you know Guys like Rick Beardsley, you know, everyone knows who Rick is in the lacrosse world. He was two years older than me. He was class of 95. We won it our, his senior year, which is my sophomore year. He was a, he was a character. Um, you know, he was just one of those outlandish defenders who would take the ball up and, you know, throw 40-yard behind the back passes, drive coach Desco nuts, who was running the defense at that time. So he was a hard kid to manage. He was hilarious in the locker room. Um, always had tons of laughs with him. And then we had, like, you know, a great mix of, of kids, too, on the team. We would have, like, the hardcore upstate kids who, like, the first day of bow season would wake up at, like, 3 in the morning and hunt. You know, for, for me, coming from Yorktown, which is outside of, of New York City, like, I, I wanted nothing to do with hunting. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to put gel in my hair and go out on a Friday night. So we had we had a lot of a lot of different characters, but it meshed really well. You know, yeah. like just road trips were amazing. Like I, the the five hour bus rides down to Baltimore because you just cut through Pennsylvania. Like those went so fast. We'd play cards in the back. We'd have a ton of fun. We'd laugh at each other. Um, it was just it was an amazing experience. I I will tell you, like I would do anything to hit rewind. I yeah. really would. Like I I I would do anything. Yeah. Is it still like that at Syracuse? You, or has no, it has no, it, it's changed? No, no and, I, and I'm not going to sit here and like bash the program because times have changed. You can't do what what we did because like you know with social media and the way that everything's captured and everything's under a microscope. Uh, Coach Simmons would probably have a tough time, you know, dealing with the characters that he had to deal with and and the way that we acted. Not that we were bad; we were great kids and we respected the game and respected people, but like. Back then, things were different, man. Like, you know, the, the, too much is under the microscope right now. And, and I think it's a different time. I mean, you look at the, the landscape of college lacrosse. I mean, Coach Simmons, you know, make a couple phone calls and he'd get whoever he wanted from, from the state of New York. I mean, that's where you wanted to go. Where now it's, it's so competitive with recruiting. We had the, you know, the wave of early recruiting where, you know, kids were in eighth, ninth grade getting recruited. Who's getting the love? That's not the, the way Syracuse was. And Coach Desco is part of that regime of, of Coach Roy Simmons. So they don't necessarily recruit. And I, and I don't want to come across the wrong way. I'm not going to say they don't recruit as hard because they recruit hard. But they don't recruit with the same level of, like, intensity as, as some of these other schools. So and, 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 and the playing field has been way leveled compared to, to what it was. I mean, I look at the 22 Final Fours from 83 to 2005. I could sit here and argue, and like what John Tillman's done, seven of the last eight, you could argue in today's game, that's almost the equivalent of 22 straight. Sure. The, the parody and all the great players from coast to coast. So, I look, I'm never one of these guys that, that feels like my time was better. Like, times <laughs> change. Deal with it. Understand that kids are different. 
know, kids are still great. They're, they're, they still work hard. They still love the game. It's just, it's different. Everything around the environment's different. It's really hard to, to, to have something stay the same for, for all those years. Notre Dame football's not the same. Right. You know, Duke basketball's not the same. Coach K was dealing with Christian Leitner and, and Grant Hill, who were four-year guys who were part of that program and off-season every single year. Now he's got all these one and done. So yeah. nothing's the same. Yeah. Yeah. So after college, you make your way to ESPN. And I'm curious, is that something you always wanted to do? How'd you get started as an announcer? You know, it's interesting. I went to Syracuse and the Newhouse School is, you know, depending on the year and the ranking with Northwestern, it's like the best communication school in the country. Yeah. I never thought of it once. <laughs> I was I was a political science major, which means I was a lacrosse major. I did well in school. Like I you know, I, I made I made Dean's list most semesters. I took my school seriously and I tell kids all the time, like, I didn't kill myself doing tons of work and all nighters. But the one advice that I give every kid that I, that I honestly did is I went to every class. Like I didn't skip class. I went to every single class. I sat there and I paid attention in class. And honestly, I never had to play catch up. I didn't have to pull all nighters and I was able to play lacrosse and really, really enjoy it. Um, I wish a part of me thinks that if I had to do it again, I would have gone to Newhouse. but I think a part of like What's been fun and, and interesting for me is, is I've learned this craft more on the fly and just I've, I've embraced the, the opportunities of, of not knowing and, and, and hopefully knowing and, and researching and figuring out ways to know. So for me, um, you know, I graduated in 97. I started um, with, with a master's degree in education because I wanted to be a coach and teach. And as I caught, you know, I taught and I, I coached for about six years. And then in 2004, uh, I had a friend of mine who went to Syracuse who told me there was an opening at CBS college sports, which at the time was CSTV, which you probably remember. Yeah. And they had an analyst opening. He asked me, you know, if I wanted to, to explore it and, and give it a shot. And I talked to some people and they gave me a shot and I had no clue what I was doing. And I'm, I'm sure I was terrible at it. <laughs> I liked it and, and I, and I enjoyed it. So in 2004, I did a couple games and then 2005 they had a whole slate of games and they brought in a bunch of different people and they gave me uh, the job. So in 2005, I worked a whole season um, for CSTV, which, which had the bulk of the regular season games. ESPN at the time was, was more dialed towards the playoffs. So I did the whole season with Joe Beninati, who is a total pros pro. And I credit so much of everything to Joe because my first experience and like anyone's first experience in a different industry is so influential. Like you think that's the way that you have to do things. So Joe was the ultimate preparer, the ultimate professional. And the way that he approached games, like that's the way I thought everyone did it, right. which was not the case. But for me, it was the greatest gift. And I, to this day, I, I try to remind him like every year, like, thank you so much, Joe. You, whether you realize it or not, like you had such a big impact on my professional career because you were the first one. That's what I thought. Like that's the way it should be done, and it was it was a great gift from from Joe to me, and he didn't even know he was giving it to me. So like I worked with Joe, and I was able to understand the way to prepare and the way to approach games, and um, he was great. He gave me so much feedback and he'd give me so many tips uh every single week and and i owe so much to him so 2005 i do a full slate i'm with cstv and cbs college sports for the next four years until 2009 then 2010 i go over to espn with some people who used to be at cstv and cbs college sports and um i get immersed in the lacrosse coverage and the beauty of that experience for me is you know they had me up in the booth a lot but they also had me try some different roles within the broadcast, which kind of segued to other sports and allowed me to do that. So if I just stayed in the booth in lacrosse, I wouldn't have had those opportunities in other sports like football. But it just gave me um, a window um, into exploring some other options. So I was calling games on the field in lacrosse. But I was also having some reporting duties where I'd have to do interviews and some feature type stuff, uh, which has led me to just trying all different things. And I, and I feel like the sport of lacrosse um, is so great and the games are so great and the access is amazing too like the access that we have to the players the stories that we can tell we have to take advantage of it. it's the same reason why a few years ago I started doing more features with kids and 
having them jump in the car and tell their stories with me just because lacrosse, you have that opportunity, you know, like you're, you're not going to have those same opportunities in, you know, in, in football, you're, you're not going to be in a car with Baker Mayfield and it's just the two of you and you're right. driving around Norman and then, you know, no one's worrying about what you're doing. L- lacrosse, it's, it's really cool because there's a trust there and there's a brotherhood and like people understand I'm not going to do anything in a negative light to, to show this kid if he has any flaws. It's, it's promoting the game. It's, it's doing things um, to make it better and, and tell stories. So that, that's kind of the way that it all worked for me. Yeah, it really is an incredible perspective and, and, and the access that you get doing what you do. I mean, you've been on the field now, I think, for, what, the last nine Final Fours? Um, yeah. So t- price, yeah, at least seven or eight. I mean, I've been, I've been with the – I've been with the company for for nine lacrosse seasons. So yeah, so at least seven or eight. Yeah. It's been, so it's, take it's us been down crazy. your list of some of the most memorable games or moments or players that you've gotten to witness over those years. What stands out? You know, I, I think to me it's about players capturing a moment and an opportunity. And, you know, you have these great players who, who, are, who are well-known going into the Final Fours. And, um, but to me, it, it's, it's about the new story and a, and a player capturing um, an opportunity in, in a moment. So that is 2016 and Chris Cloutier, or the, the, yeah. the, the, the former attackman known as Chris Cloutier, who's now Chris Cloutier. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's always been the name, the name he's had. And he just he didn't want to tell anyone we were missing <laughs> announcing it all those years so he's Cloutier uh so but but the Americans know him as Cloutier and Cloutier in 2016 had um you know the 14 goal performance in two games in the final four nine in the semifinals against Loyola and then um you know the the five in the finals in the game winner uh to give North Carolina a team that didn't belong there. I mean, the year before they had Jimmy Bitter and Joey Sankey who were like transcending players for that program. They were the two of the top three scorers in school history. They lose those guys. Carolina barely gets into the playoffs is playing basically like single elimination lacrosse uh, for weeks. And then they ride this, this performance of a kid who was kind of in and out of the, lo- uh, the lineup and, to be honest with you, I don't know if the coaches were so sold on him at moments in that season, and he absolutely blew up. He gave Carolina something, you know, that they hadn't had in so many years. I mean, everyone thought the whammy was on Carolina. I mean, the last Final Four they had before 2016 was was 1993 for a program that's like, you know, one of the top programs in the country. Getting the championship weekend was was a burden in itself, and then winning it. So, like, to me, it's all about moments. You know, Maryland wins the national title. Uh, that was a big moment, too. Uh, you have the Tawarton winner and, and Matt Rambo, and, and not to belittle his performance at all, but he was kind of a star coming into the Final Four, mm-hmm. where, like, the moment was captured by Cloutier in Carolina the year before. You know, you could argue teams and runs that were made, but it's, it's, it's really hard to argue what, what Carolina did that year. Yeah, I was a big fan of that team. Michael Tagliaferri, uh, oh, yeah. Danville, Carol- California native, native, was on the team. So we were watching closely. And to yeah. see the joy of Brescia and those celebrations that were published in the locker room were just like you could, you could feel the relief and the joy from that team. It was that, – that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think the game, the game kind of – kind of needed it just like it's yeah. good for the game when, when when Yale wins it you know everyone thinks Yale lacrosse if you if you talk to people that, that watch TV and the Dr. Pepper uh, commercial where they're dogging lacrosse this past weekend and you think of Yale lacrosse you'd think about a bunch of nerds that were like weak <laughs> kids where you know you see those kids and you, you see them come off the bus they were the physically most imposing team in, in all of college lacrosse last year they were the most physical blue collar mentality people mocked me the year before when they lost to Syracuse in the dome in the first round when I called them a blue collar lacrosse team so everyone that mocked me the year before about calling them a blue collar lacrosse team would would totally understand it and where I was going if they saw them play this past year I mean they they were were physically imposing yeah (laughs) so 
you, your relationship with the game spans about 33 years now. Obviously, a lot's changed, but some things have stayed the same. Uh, in your opinion, what's changed the most about lacrosse over time, and, and, and what still is the same? I think the the national perception of the game has changed because of, of the growth of the game. I mean, it's the fastest-growing team sport in the country. Uh, it was a northeast mid-Atlantic sport for so many years that were played in the prep schools. Um, as much as the diversity is not where it needs to be, um, there are people who are who are really putting forth tremendous effort, whether it's Harlem lacrosse or City Lax or Bronx lacrosse or Charm City. You know, a lot of people like to think of the negatives of, of lacrosse and the lack of diversity. I like to celebrate the accomplishments that are being made and that there are changes and it's going to take time and it's not something that's overnight. But I think the perception of the sport is, is changing um, from an athletic standpoint, from a geography standpoint. I mean, if someone told you uh, when you were in high school in Rhode Island before you went to Virginia that you'd be immersed in the game in San Francisco and kids in sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade would be as good as they are in San Francisco, you probably would have laughed at them, right? Think about that. Yeah, yeah, I would have. I mean, if you had said that about Rhode Island at the time, I probably would have laughed. That's yeah, that's where yeah, the game but, was at that time. Yeah, exactly. So I think the game is, is is certainly changing, and the type of athletes that are playing are are are, are significant. I look at like, for example, Brendan Mullins, who played for Syracuse, he graduated two years ago. Uh, he was the 5A state defensive player of the year in football in Texas, okay? <laughs> he had offers from TCU, uh, Oklahoma State, I believe, um, Texas A&M. He, he had a list of offers where he decided to play lacrosse. 15 years ago, that never happens. So you, we're attracting a better athlete. I mean, there are guys that are playing right now in the NFL, um, multiple guys that were really good lacrosse players, like Sam Hubbard, who played at Ohio State last year, was defensive end, left school early to go in the NFL. He was a Notre Dame lacrosse commit before he decommitted and went to Ohio State. So you're getting that level of an athlete where, honestly, I don't think 20 years ago you did. I mean, you could argue, you could say, oh, Patrick Kearney played for Virginia, but he was a lacrosse player, recruited to play lacrosse at Virginia, walked on the football team. Yeah. He wasn't like a blue chip high school football player, you know, who turned down football or was committed to a lacrosse school, then decided for football, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're attracting a, a different type of athlete. There's, I'll tell you, when I cover college football, I go through these rosters. There's a lot of kids that played lacrosse in high school. I mean, Trace McSorley, the, the quarterback at Penn State, was a high school midfielder. There's, <laughs> there's a ton of those guys out there. So um, it, it's, it's, it's real for sure. Uh, and I would say the thing that stayed the same is the fraternity feel. I mean, you're never too, too many people away from, from having a common bond with someone in the sport of lacrosse. I mean, if you and I bumped into each other and we didn't know each other, we could probably within two minutes kind of uh, close a gap in terms of something in common with people and friends and you know it's just yeah. it, that fraternity feel is really still there and i tell kids all the time i say you know what like i know you're really sold on, on playing at this school or that school rest assured you're going to leave the sport of lacrosse with amazing relationships and friends forever and that's the biggest win yeah yeah it's i think it's different than most other sports um, yes yeah so uh new rules coming this season to NCAA lacrosse. What do you think of them? Exciting? Yeah, I think it's exciting. I, I applaud the rules committee too for like presenting it, taking feedback, and then actually making a stance on what the rule was. Because, you know, in, in August when the, the proposal came out, I thought it was great that we were moving in direction to play faster, but I was really nervous about the whole conundrum at the face off. And I, I don't want to get too granular here, but like, the timing of the face-offs and people who follow it know what I'm talking about, how like the possession wasn't going to start, the face-off man did this, did that. Like the one thing I think we needed unequivocally was just a straight clock off the possession, yeah. which was, you know, whether it's 60, 80 seconds, keep it clean. So when a guy picks up a ball, 
the clock starts. Right. And the proposal wasn't that way with the face-off. You know, like if you scoop it and, you know, you bring it back to the goalie, you can have the 20 seconds to clear and then the 80-second shot clock comes on or it goes to 60 when it crosses the line. That was way too blurry and muddy um, and, and just too many variables. And, and I think the committee, who I applaud a lot, took the feedback of the smarter lacrosse people that said, wait, do we want to do this? Because this is going to cause this, 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 and this. And they went to a straight clock. So I applaud them for that. 80 seconds. Um, I personally think maybe it should have been a 70, 75 second clock, but, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to split hairs here. I think the 80 seconds and the reason why they went uh, with a 60 and a 20 clear before is because they wanted the, the restart to be 60, not 80. Now they have to do the restart. At 80, I think that's a little long. But look, the game's evolved. I'm really happy that there's a shot clock. There was too much Mickey Mouse stuff going on in terms of lulling refs to sleep and doing this and and not playing the game the way it should be. And, and not for nothing, like what other sport does a ref dictate pace of play? That's too much for the refs, man. Like yeah. that was not fair for them. They're worried. They should call a game. Look for the infractions. Keep the game clean. Don't worry about dictating pace of play. So that that equation is out the window. I think the game is much cleaner because of that. It makes it a lot easier for for fans to to understand the rules. Now you could just say like, you know, you you pick up the ball, eighty second shot clock. You know, yeah. that's it, that, it's clean and easy. Uh, so I applaud that. I'm really pumped about the dive too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're from Virginia. Like the the amount of players that dove from UVA is, is probably an all-time high. So, oh, it's the uh, mo- most think, exciting it's play yeah. in the game. I, yeah. I, I scored and, most of my high school goals diving. <laughs> and you probably never heard a goalie, did you? No, I never touched one. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think the dive's a little different than it was back in the day and, and, and some of the tweaks to the rule, but I think it's a great rule, and I think it's going to be easier now for defensemen because defensemen became defenseless with the old. Uh, that's an interesting like, point. Yeah. Yeah, you had all these attackmen. Like you know, if you had a defender on your back, they were they were kind of just using that pressure to, to to get a push call. It wasn't fair for them. So I think defenders now can can be a little bit more physical. And and I hope you know I know there's so much attention on head injuries, and I want to keep the game as clean as possible. But if there's opportunities for clean hits, if you dive, you should run the risk of being hit, too. That's, yeah. that's all I'm saying. What are some of the other exciting storylines of the this coming college lacrosse season? Like, who, who's the team to beat this year, and who's the favorite to win the Torton Award? You know, I'm, I'm looking at a few teams. I think Yale's going to be really good again. And now they just got T.D. Erland from, from Albany, which, which makes it like, yeah. You know, you had a couple holes. Those holes could be masked. When someone's winning, Chris, like 21 out of 21 face-offs or 20 out of 24 face-offs, I mean, that gives you opportunities to take risks other places in the field. Like, that gives you opportunities where every turnover isn't so costly. So, you know, Yale has five of their top six middies back. They have arguably the best defender in the country back. They have TD now facing off. They have some offensive players who are kind of ready to emerge and did in spots when Ben Reeves was held in check. So I think Yale will be in the mix. I'd be surprised if they don't make it to a Final Four again. Cornell will be really good. The biggest question for Cornell is, is Jeff Teat going to sit in the corner and drink NyQuil when he's getting shut off or is going to have a plan for him? Like, like what's going to happen? Like, really? So you have a whole season to figure that out. Um, he's really exciting. I say Teat, and I also say, like, these other – Attackman Pat Spencer is one of the great attackmen I've seen in college lacrosse. Oh yeah, he's he's amazing. Yeah. So you have him, you have him, you have Sowers, you have Teat. There's really high level attackmen. Um, is Spencer the type of star that could take Loyola to a national title? I mean, if he does, that puts him in some pretty elite category. Because like from a street cred standpoint, if Pat Spencer wins the Torton and, and Loyola wins the national title. Like, I look at that street cred way more than a Syracuse national title or Virginia national title. And I'm not trying to, like, dog our programs there, but I think you know what I mean, right? Like, yeah. street cred for that kind of player is is, is crazy. So, um, I think Cornell could be really good, although they're going to struggle facing off. And, you know, I think the new rules, though, will, will allow for – 
way more turnovers and changes in possession where, you know, you're going to see maybe the same amount of, of, uh, of face-offs being, being actually administered. And I think there's going to be a, a ton of, of, of parallels in terms of the old scoring and the new scoring, but I think you're going to see a lot more possessions within. So what I mean by that is there could be a lot of games that are still 14, 12, but I think that you're going to see um, a lot more possessions within those goals. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And the, yeah, the, it'll balance an uneven face-off percentage a little bit more because you get up and, and play a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. I think the face-off is sort of the, the next thing to address potentially, seeing how these rules go. Um, because as you mentioned, when a team goes 21 of 23 facing off, it almost, I think it appears like it, it maybe doesn't make sense to an average fan. I know it's infuriating for the opposing coach. I know that. Uh, from personal experience, but yeah, it's a great point because yeah. the, the average fans like, wait, wh- why don't you just jump on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, is he, why is he winning so many? So, um, you know, you're also a side sideline reporter for ESPN's college football coverage. I've seen you on a couple games this season. Um, it's been great to see you on the field in that role. You get access to some of the biggest football programs in America Compare the similarities and differences between big-time college football programs and big-time college lacrosse programs. You know, I think that's a, it's a great question. Um, I would say the similarities are the athletes' love for the game. And although college football might be bigger and the stakes might be higher nationally, the drive that a big-time Division One lacrosse player – or a big time division three lacrosse player is the same drive and competitive fire that a big time college football division one player has, or a division three player has it's their world like athletes and the opportunities to compete in the game means so much. So like, I don't sit here and think that because there's more people watching or there's more people in the stands that it means more for that athlete than, than that athlete just depending on sports. So I think like the, the level of drive and competitive fire is very similar. Um, the way that football has so much baggage isn't the right word, but external factors to it, you know, there's, you know, it could be 15 coaches on a, on a team. There's, you know, there's a social media directors for these big teams. There's three SIDs. There's, you know, 10 trainers. It's like, there's a, a monster production for college football games. It's monster. It's monster level lacrosse. Not so much, Um, you know, but, but I, but I go back to, I I think it means the world to, to the athletes. I think that college football has a life of its own too. And a fan base where uh, let's be honest with lacrosse. I mean, you know, if you go to Virginia, there's a good following in Charlottesville for sure. um, With the local people, but for college football, you go to some of these places, you go to LSU, you go to Alabama, you go to Georgia. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big part of their social life. Like their, their lives socially, some of those local people revolve around game day. And, and that's not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. It's just a, it's a, it's a following that is unmatched. Do you ever think lacrosse will get, close to that level probably won't ever get quite there but do you see it going that direction i see it going in that direction but but i see it being way less like i think lacrosse is going to grow and it's grown tremendously already and all you need to know is back back in the day like college lacrosse coaches never got fired because the sport didn't move the needle if you don't win now because there is a following and there's resources being dumped into the game um, you're going to lose your job. Yeah. So the sport definitely means more to athletic programs. It means more to alumni. It means more to fan bases. So we're trending in that direction. In my lifetime, no, I don't think we will ever see lacrosse at the level of a college football. But I think it is progressively getting more important in, in many people's eyes, not just the player. Yeah. So, so back to lacrosse. So you founded 
Maverick Showtime. I want to talk about that a little bit. It's one of the most prestigious events in the country for high school players getting recruited. Take us back to when you started that. Why did you start it and and how has it changed and grown to where it is today? You know, I started it with with two other guys and I'm not really involved too much in lacrosse in regards to the event side of things. Um, or travel just because of, of, of a time, you know, sensitivity standpoint, everything I'm doing work. So it's really the only thing that I do um, outside uh, of my professional responsibilities in the sport of lacrosse. Um, and, and you know what, like I just wanted, I wanted to be part of an event um, that brought the best players in the country together in a really unique, cool environment where it had like a one field model. Um, it was exclusive it was competitive and it was fun. Um, to me, a model that I kind of always thought of when, when I was approached to jump in with some of these guys was like, I don't know if you remember back in the day, like I always remember seeing highlights of like Sonny Vaccaro and the Nike ABCD camps and just like all eyes were on one court and there was all these coaches there. Like that's kind of how I envisioned um, Showtime. And, and that's why I was all for it. Like when the guys approached me and, and wanted to, to have me part of the process, I was I was very adamant uh, about creating an environment uh, for the players that was unique, and we've never changed it. Like to this day, I mean, we've been going out for I don't know twelve years, and we've never changed the one field model, and I never will, um, just because it's really cool, it's unique. If you're a 2020 grad kid, last summer there's one field to play on, and and all the eyes are on that field. So um, the event continues to grow in terms of like the popularity and participation from kids from all over the country is great. The numbers stay the same. And we're just trying to make the, the event as, as cool and as fun as possible. I mean, we don't have the kids. Um, we don't have the kids in a situation where they're allowed to have roommate requests. So a kid from San Francisco might be staying with a kid from Long Island. And um, we encourage the kids to bring their Xboxes, playing cards and hang out at night and, and, and meet other kids. So as much as it's competitive on the field, um, the off-field relationships are great. You see them kind of develop um, throughout the week. And, you know, for me too, it's like, it's somewhat cheating from the standpoint that I see a lot of these kids that I cover. I've right. had them at the event uh, for that week in the summertime. So that's, that's been super cool. Um, and that's been something um, I'm definitely, um, I'm very fortunate to, to understand like who are these next players and, you know, and it's great. And I, and I think the college coaches really, appreciate the fact that we haven't changed the event because for them it's it's a grind the summer's a grind and they they travel everywhere and they're going to these tournaments sometimes that have 15 20 fields with with inaccurate uh databases on the kids and you know you come to showtime you you don't have to move so at showtime you get to see all the best young lacrosse players um and you get to know them a little bit what advice would you give a young player who wants to get that level or wants to become a great lacrosse player? A couple things. Um, one, I would say study as much film as possible um, of great players. I, I don't think that's done enough. I think like kids look at highlights and they don't even realize like what they're watching, like really break down film of great players who play your position and, and see how they set up their dodge, see how they shoot on the run, see how they move their sticks in, in really tight spots. Like, Really study the game. Don't just watch lacrosse because, you know, you want to see a good game or a cool move or this, that, and the other thing. And it's just kind of you throw it up on the wall. It's like, oh, it's a great shot. Like, why is it a great shot? Break it down. Like, I think kids don't break down film enough at that age of really, like, great players at their position and what makes those guys go. And then the second thing I would say is, like, enjoy this, man. Like, enjoy this. This shouldn't be a pressure cooker. And, and, and that message is, is just as much for the kids as the mom and dad. Look, your fate's going to be your fate. And, and in regards to who your high school coach is and, and, and what events you go to, the coach that recruits you has to like you and you have to be one of their guys. Like, it's, it's that simple. I mean, so many people in this sport know people and, you know, they think that it, you know, can help them get into certain situations and, and open up opportunities. But your level of play 
is going to level out in regards to where you belong. And just just embrace that. Like if your ceiling is is school A, okay, it's it's your ceiling. You're going to go to a school and you're going to play great lacrosse and you're going to meet unbelievable people and you're going to have a fraternity for life. I think so many people are chasing this like top level D1 and 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 want it and don't want to hear the truth, you know? And, yeah. and the truth sometimes hurts and you have to understand it. And it's like it's like in anything in life. So I, I just think, like, have fun. Enjoy the journey of this, man. This is not a destination. I don't want kids to play lacrosse and pick up a stick to think that the end game is being recruited. And, and, and you see that it's, it's different in the sport of lacrosse because, to be quite honest, you football, basketball, baseball, the college experience is just the next step in the ultimate goal. I mean, these kids who go to Alabama for football or Kentucky for hoops, they want to be in the professional ranks. College lacrosse, it takes a really certain strong individual who wants to be great not to get lazy once they commit. Because ultimately, the carrot that they've been chasing is in their mouth. So are, are they going to be okay with that or are they going to want more? The kid who loves the game will want to be great and will want to chase greatness no matter what. But the kid who is just kind of like destination driven during the journey, they're going to get that commitment from a great school. And they're going to become fat cats. That's the reality. There's yeah. some kids that are going to be like that. There's two different kids when that commitment comes. But the sport of lacrosse, I think, puts players in a position to really have to fight fat cat syndrome more than the other sports. Because college in the other sports is a stepping stone to professional ranks. All due respect to professional lacrosse. It's not at the level of those other sports. So it takes a certain kid that really loves the game to want to be great no matter what. I think that's fantastic advice and a great note to end on. Kark, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great talking to you. Anytime, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Bye.